All right, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psychology Program and host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with Allie Schramm. How are you, Allie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. I'm also here with Amory Schwery. How are you, Amory? I'm great. Thank you. And we are, I haven't said where we are yet, we're live at the Midwestern Psychological Association Conference in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and we are going to be talking to, what, I think 13 different researchers yeah. over the next uh, two days. Um, talking about the research, these are all award-winning projects um, through SciCi, and we're going to be talking to them about their research, why they did it, uh, what they did, uh, what they found, that sort of thing. So. What do you guys think? How's, how's MPA so far? It's great. There's a lot of um, energy, and I'm excited to hear about all this research. Yeah. I'm going to echo that. That's <laughs> all right. We, it's literally just kicking off. It's been, MPA has been going on for about 10 minutes, so, uh, <laughs> so we're in the very early, early stages here. So, um, well, that is all for this introduction. Then we are going to go ahead and get started in just a few minutes. This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. My name is Emily Wirtz, and I'm Danielle Bruno, and we're from Ashland University. Um, we would like to thank our faculty sponsor, Dr. Mitchell Metzger, in the psychology department. Um, our research focuses on aggressive coaching styles in a putting task. Um, so our participants were included in three separate conditions. They either listened to no coaching style, an aggressive coaching style, or a positive coaching style. Um, for the three conditions, we had them make 10 putts each and measured the ball's distance from the putting cup after each putt, and we measured that in inches. Um, and after each condition, we had them record their emotions on the PANIS, which is the positive and negative affect schedule. Um, our results, we got um, a big spike in the distance in the aggressive coaching style, which meant they were much further away from the putting cup. And as far as the affect goes, after the positive condition, um, participants recorded more positive affect emotions, such as um, feeling encouraged, enthusiastic about the task. And after the aggressive coaching condition, students recorded um, more negative affects, such as frustration, anger, sadness, possibly. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for meeting with us, and congratulations on being Psychi Award winners, and we hope we have fun at MPA. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thank you. All right, we are here with our next poster. Here we go. Hi, my name is Francisco Pablo Lozano III, and I'm from Oklahoma, with Oklahoma State University, and the title of my project is Trust in Oneself as a Determinant of Retirement Income Security. So we took a quantitative approach in examining if certain psychological and demographic variables successfully predict trust in oneself and providing a satisfactory income in retirement. Where our sample included 369 working adults living in Mexico, ranging in age from 21 to 64. Uh, we tested our hypothesis by running a two-level multiple hierarchical regression, where the first level included demographic variables, second level included psychological ones. Uh, our model uh, was successful in uh, 
our whole model was deemed statistically significant at the 0.01 level, and one psychological and three demographic variables were successful in accounting for 12% of the total variance. Uh, so on the whole, we took a theoretical perspective in furthering our understanding of retirement research when it comes to trusting oneself and predict and and providing a satisfactory income in retirement. That is awesome. Well, congratulations. It sounds like amazing research. Um, continue doing great things, and we know you will. And congrats on your Psychi Award. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I would just like of to course. thank uh, Dr. Douglas Hershey. He is an excellent professor, excellent mentor, and motivator. So, awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for meeting with us. You have a great day. Yeah, you as well. Thank you. I'm Mandy Ehlert. I'm from Carthage. I'm Allison Mackey, also from Carthage. And we would like to thank Anthony Barnhart, our faculty sponsor and Isabella Montoya for also doing some work with our project. Yes. <laughs> so our title is Auditory Entrainment Effects on Visual Attention, Insights from Magicians. So we wanted to just look at cross-modal entrainment and how um, your brain deploys more attentional resources on the beat versus off the beat. And this is a technique that's commonly used by magicians in magic shows when they create high moments and low moments of attention um, in order to produce magic. So this is basically the first compelling evidence that cross-modal entrainment actually occurs. Um. Yeah, so when we <laughs> presented participants with an auditory um, rhythm, they entrained and they deployed visual attention on the beat um, more than when off the beat. So people were much faster to react to a stimuli that was presented on the beat versus off the beat which is, again, the first compelling argument of this case. So then we further looked at how the changing rhythms would affect this, which is based off of the Large and Jones model, um, and we predicted that entrainment would happen, but um, we actually found that for a slowing rhythm, that entrainment happened, and um, people were much faster on the beat to react to the stimuli than off the beat, but in the speeding condition, we actually found the opposite, which argues against the Large and Jones attending model. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this research oh, and yeah. sharing it with yeah. us, and congratulations on your um, Sakai Award. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. So my name is Alyssa Minton. I am from Indiana University Northwest. Um, I would like to thank my faculty sponsor, Dr. Frances Daniel, for um, everything that she's done this semester. On this project, I also worked with Olivia Beard, Jenny uh, Cervantes, Natasha Van Gilder, and James Frederick. And my research project explored the influence of mindset on the susceptibility to create false memories in the Dees Rodiger McDermott paradigm. So um, mindset can be defined as fixed or growth, and fixed people, fixed-minded individuals believe that intelligence is innate and unchangeable, whereas growth-minded people believe that intelligence can be cultivated through hard work and effort. And we measured recognition rates for um, the critical lure words in the Dees Rodiger McDermott paradigm. Originally, we found um, opposite of what we had predicted. Then I designed a second study that actually um, coincided more so with our initial prediction, but we incorporated error feedback into the experiment design to activate mindset. So. Awesome. That is very interesting research. Thank um, you. And thank you for doing this, and thank you for sharing it with yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and congratulations on your Sakai Award. Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, have a good one. Thanks. Hi, my name is Jessica Wood. I'm from Metropolitan State University in Denver, Colorado. And my research study is titled, Riddle Me This, an Investigation of Measures of Insight and Creativity. So what we were looking at was the insight experience, which is an experience that everyone experiences where they're solving a difficult problem and they can't get the answer and all of a sudden it pops into their head and they have this moment of, aha. 
And so we were looking at that and if there's any relation to creativity. And so we looked at two scales, the Dispositional Insight Scale and the Creativity Achievement Questionnaire. And what we found was that neither correlated with being able to answer insightful problem solving. And so we looked into some of those results and we found that in the Creativity Achievement Questionnaire, we did not have a very wide range of creativity. So whether our specific sample was not highly creative or if the scale isn't measuring creativity in ways that are often seen, yeah. those are two ways to kind of take these results and try and get some more information. So the ranges weren't quite comparable to the ranges of the insightful problem solving. So uh, yeah, more research is definitely needed in both areas of insight and creativity to see if there's a relation there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations on your award. Thank you. And thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We are here with Jess Krofcheck talking about some of her research. So Jess, can you tell us what your research topic was? Yep, my research topic was um, whether design would have an effect on memory recall in like, a classroom and how like stuff is being presented. Awesome. What did you find? Um, we found that like our like results were trending towards the like more colorful PowerPoints having better like recall, but it like wasn't significant. However, like my research actually like disproved a lot of other previous researches that said that like oh, color wow. and like pictures would be like more distracting for like students, but it actually like ended up being like students rated it more interesting and like seemed more like informational. And so like I can argue now that like colors and like having like more fun facts and more like of a jazzed up power presentation, if you will, like actually keeps students attentive more, which will like help them with their scores and like learn better. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So what do you think future research could um, do to do to like improve your findings or like strengthen your findings? Um, I definitely think that obviously like adding it on a bigger scale um, and then like having it spread across other universities and like having it more like be a semester long like trial instead of just like a couple of weeks and like trying to collect data mm -hmm. um, but actually like enacting it into like school systems and like in classes and see how it turns out. Yeah, Awesome. Well, thank you so much and congratulations on everything and good job. Hi, I'm Marie Schroeder uh, from the College of Worcester in Ohio. Um, I'd like to thank my two advisors, Dr. Grit Hertzman and Dr. Laura Birch, for sponsoring me. Um, and the title of my project is The Perceptual Assimilation and Categorization of Non-Native Phonemes in L2 French Speakers and Non-French Speaking Anglophones. Um, so basically what my project is about, it's an EEG ERP study that focuses on um, linguistic and phonetic differences between um, well, all native English speakers, but some who speak French and some who don't. So second, lang second language learners and non-second language learners. Um, and really what I wanted to see was how they perceive big differences and small differences between English and French in terms of phonology. So I tested the big difference between the R's in English and French and the small differences between two sounds, J and J, which are hard to tell. Um, and what I found was a main effect of language between the two, which is really cool. So um, people are obviously more familiar with their native language, so that showed up in my ERP results. Um, but I didn't find a main effect of difference, which was kind of my hypothesis. So uh, from, this, um, from this outcome, I can um, say that we can go more towards training studies to make sure that everyone within the L2 group 
has um, a uniform phonological competency. So um, that's basically the gist. Uh, it gets a little more complicated, but um, that's like simplified version. <laughs> awesome. Well, this is yeah. a fantastic research, and thank, thank you. you for doing it, and congratulations on your thank SACI you. award. Thank you very much. Hi, um, my name is Cecilia Lentz. I'm from Bradley University. Um, my project's called What Should We Hope For? An Investigation into the Factors that Influence Usage of Hope. It was um, conducted under Dr. Derek Montgomery. So basically, hope has two defining features, um, a desire and belief in the possibility of a favorable outcome. And our research addressed on what basis adults distinguish hope from related concepts such as think and want. And we think that maybe hope might be an evaluative term in that it implies moral importance. So people may be more likely to hope if it's something with moral obligations, such as, I hope your cancer gets better, things like that. Um, hope also implies uncertainty, so we thought it might be possible that individuals reserve hope for outcomes with low probability of occurrence. Um, and the study looked at whether hope is especially associated with highly uncertain events or with events that are of particular moral importance. So what we did, we took 100 participants via mturk.com, which is a website where people are paid to um, fill out surveys. And we had a pretty even distribution of males and females in comparison with an undergraduate sample where you would probably get a higher female population from like a 101 class. Um, so the independent variables were moral condition and probability level, moral condition being high or low, probability level being 50 or 10%, and we basically just looked at frequency of times hope was used over think and want. So when looking at want and hope, um, we had a vignette where Annie is a girl um, who has a friend who wants to get accepted to a university. This friend either has a 10 or 50% chance of getting accepted or getting denied in the low moral condition. Okay. And so we were manipulating both morality and probability. And so then participants would choose between hope and want. Would Annie hope to see her friend accepted or denied or want to see her friend accepted or denied? Okay. And then they also chose between statements denoting hope and think in um, looking at moral importance, so I hope the gift for the sick child is in the box, or I hope the diary I stole is in the box. Okay. We also use words like my grandmother's Bible or like my gun okay. to try to get at people's moral obligation. So basically what we found is that um, participants were more likely to use hope over want in situations with low probability of occurrence. Okay. Um, and when comparing think and hope, um, and times hoped, moral condition had no effect on participants choosing a hope. Same thing happened with hope and want. Participants, um, there was no effect of moral condition. So at first we thought this was a fluke because other people had found this, but we ran more participants two more times, found the same thing, but probability had a large effect. So we think hope is reserved for outcomes with low probability of occurrence and that moral importance does not affect linguistic usage. Um, but we also think that this might just be that hope is less certain than think or want, so participants might have been more likely to choose those right. over hope because they felt the certainty was there. Okay. Um, and we think this is important to pursue because psychologists' idea of hope and the linguistic usage of hope seems to be different um, in that like, if you look at some hope scales out there, they're more based on optimism and positivity versus like the linguistic usage, which seems to be more based off of like chance. Okay. Very good.
that is fascinating. Nicely done. So anything else you want to tell us about the project or about the, the work you're doing? Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Derek Montgomery and Dr. Tony Herman for helping me on this project. Very good. Um, I'm not continuing work on this, but I would like to write this up as a paper. Okay. Um, so that's in the future. I'm also doing a thesis now, but it's on a different topic. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much. So that was really fascinating. Thank you. Uh, my name is Robert Henry. I'm a senior in my undergraduate at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Um, and I'm co uh, completing my senior honors thesis project with Dr. Lindsay Rivluna in the psychology department. Uh, the title of my project is Does Grit Crack Under Pressure? Trait Grit, Prime Self-Awareness, and the Influence on Physiology. Uh, so a little bit about my project. This is a project that I actually conceptualized and designed last year during the beginning of my junior year with Dr. Rivluna. Um, we were doing a literature review on positive virtues and physiology, and I came across grit. I wasn't particularly familiar with it at the time, but uh, I realized there wasn't a lot of physiology research with uh, grit as a whole. Um, grit is a pretty newly conceptualized trait, um, conceptualized about 10 years ago by Angela Duckworth at the University of Pennsylvania. It's become pretty hot right now in the popular press, um, come under fire a little bit in academic psychology, but I was really interested in how people that are gritty react physiologically when they're self-conscious. Um, so what we did was we had participants come into the lab and we hooked them up to physiological equipment for heart rate, blood pressure, um, and from heart rate we were also able to get high frequency uh, heart rate variability or HRV. Um, what we were really interested in was the sympathetic, the heart rate, and the blood pressure measures and our parasympathetic um, heart HRV measure as well. Um, half the participants were randomly assigned to do the protocol in front of a mirror to make them self-conscious and the other half we just had the mirror flip around for a control condition. And then we had them do a five-minute baseline relaxation period, uh, a 20-minute anagram task to get them cognitively engaged in something. And then we had 10 more minutes of a final relaxation period at the end. What we had originally predicted was that the trait grit as a whole, um, when people are high in grit and in front of the mirror condition, that they would have more overall physiological engagement. So greater heart rate, greater blood pressure, greater HRV overall. Um, but what we found was actually really surprising to us. The entire trait grit... Um, as a whole didn't predict anything physiologically. It was kind of a wash. Uh, we were, I was really surprised with this. I was kind of bummed out. So I, we had to rerun the model. Uh, we were doing multi-level modeling with M+, and we had to rerun the model um, using GRIT's two subscales, the Perseverance subscale and the Consistency of Interest subscale, because I, I just had a hunch that something would come out and actually turn out to be right. The subscales were actually canceling each other out, which is why we weren't finding it. Okay. So what we found is that people that are in front of the mirror that are high in Consistency of Interest actually had lower heart rates throughout the entire task. Um, so they're getting less sympathetic um, arousal, less sympathetic engagement. Um, but when we looked at heart rate variability, we actually found the opposite. Consistency of interest didn't predict anything, but the perseverance subscale predicted lower HRV, so less parasympathetic engagement. Um, none of them predicted anything for blood pressure overall. Um, so really we're getting, we're seeing that these two subscales are predicting independently and opposite of each other as far as sympathetic and parasympathetic engagement throughout a cognitive task. Um, so overall, I think this really kind of um, it kind of supports the recent criticism of grit that's been going on. People have been saying that the grit, trait grit as a whole doesn't uh, isn't a really strong predictor um, for success, as well as like other traits like conscientiousness. Um, but the two subscales people have said actually work fine, and that's exactly what we found is that the subscales are the predictors here for physiology, not the entire trait as a whole. Um, so I think more research needs to be done on the physiology of grit. This is only the second study that I know about that's been anything with physio for grit. 
Um, but yeah, there's definitely more work to be done, but it's really cool. Wow, that is absolutely fantastic research and very important. So great job, and thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Cool. I am Aaron Brian Doyle. I'm Cortez Tillman. We are from the University of St. Thomas. First of all, we would like to thank our faculty sponsor, Dr. Pritchard. And our project is about pain tolerance and empathy and the correlation of that in a non-clinical population. Um, in terms of a little background for our project, so there's been a lot of research done in empathy levels and pain tolerance for clinical populations. Um, and in many, many clinical populations, it's been found that people have, in general, lower empathy and higher pain tolerance. And we thought that was really interesting. And we wanted to examine whether that was true in a non-clinical population as well. Um, so we administered an empathy questionnaire and then the cold pressure test as well. And timed how long people left their hands in the water. And also, every 30 seconds, how they rated their pain and the experience, how intense that was. Um, and what we found is that for people who had higher empathy on the questionnaire, their self-reported pain was significantly higher than those who had only average empathy levels, which was exactly what we predicted. But interestingly, we found no significant difference um, between high empathy and average empathy in how long they left their hands in the water. And we wonder if that wasn't because we're literally using a bucket of water and ice. And previous research has found that if you have even a two centigrade difference in degree of the water, water that people will leave their hands for vastly different amounts of time. Um, so in replicating this project, we'd love to be able to control that variable as well, because we think there really could be something there, especially based on how they reported their pain. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for doing this research, and thank you for sharing it with us today, and congrats on your Sci-Chi Award. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Kevin Summers from Miami University. I worked on this project with a graduate student, Stephen Almaraz, and a faculty sponsor, Dr. Kurt Hugenberg. Um, in this work, we are looking at how, how we infer feature, how we infer trustworthiness and dominance from features of the face. So to do this, we are taking away face parts and seeing if that disrupts trustworthiness or dominance of individuals. So if I take a feature away from the face and that disrupts trustworthiness or dominance, we know that that is a cue to trustworthiness or dominance. So in our first study, we examined um, the, what region of the face the trustworthiness and dominance comes from. So we took away the top half of the face or the bottom half of the face, leaving the other half. And we found that when we took away the top half of the face for trustworthiness, that significantly disrupted the signal for trustworthiness, but for dominance, taking away the top half or the bottom half of the face did not significantly disrupt the signal. So overall, we found that the full face is really important for dominance, whereas the top half of the face is more important for trustworthiness than the bottom half. Um, in our second study, uh, we wanted to look at features in the top half of the face that might communicate trustworthiness or dominance. So. We took the eyes out of the top half of the face and presented the top half of the face without eyes or just eyes. So we found that when we took eyes out of the top half of the face, this did not significantly disrupt the signal for trustworthiness um, compared to the rest of the top half of the face. So the eyes were no more important for trustworthiness than the rest of the top half of the face. 
But for dominance, surprisingly, we found a marginal effect that taking the eyes out of the top half of the face disrupted the signal of dominance. So we know that the eyes are a more important featural cue for dominance than they would be for trustworthiness. So in our study three, we examined uh, configuration. We wanted to see if configuration of the top half of the face was what was communicating the signal of trustworthiness since we did not find a feature of cue. So we inverted the top half of the face and found that there were significantly disruption of trustworthiness signals. So we know that the configuration of the top half of the face matters for for gaining signals of trustworthiness. And finally, in our fourth study, we examined dominance alone. And so we left intact mostly the whole face. Um, so we just took away features that have been suggested in past literature to communicate dominance. So we took away the eyes, the jaw, and the mouth. So when we took away the eyes, this significantly disrupted the signal compared to taking away the jaw or the mouth. And in interestingly, taking away the jaw and taking away the mouth did not disrupt the signal of the full face at all. So from this, we learned that the eyes are a significant uh, cue for dominance. And we also found overall that configuration of the top half of the face matters for trustworthiness. Wow, this is yeah, this is very interesting and lots of great work here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing it and thank you for doing such great work. Awesome, thank you very thank much. You. I'm Jun Tao Dai, I'm with Kenyon College and the study I'm presenting today is violence towards homosexual men and examination among his heterosexual men. So um, my faculty uh, sponsors were Taiping Peng and she advised my study in China and Sarah Mernon, she advised my study in America. So basically I'm presenting two studies today. Oh, okay. One is like, conducted among the Chinese sample and the other one is conducted among the American sample. So like for both studies, I was interested in if uh, visual stimuli can affect heterosexual and straight guys uh, gay judgment. So basically what we did was we assigned all the heterosexual men, all the straight men into three conditions. One is to view a straight stimuli. Uh, in the Chinese sample it was like the photo and in American sample it was the video. And then the three conditions were the heterosexual stimuli, the homosexual stimuli and the landscape neutral stimuli. And what we found was that in, in the, among the Chinese sample, straight people in the gay stimuli condition, they show the highest animalistic dehumanization of gay people. By the way, animalistic dehumanization is just to view the target as an animal. And also they show the strong, strongest intention to hurt gay people. And the neutral condition, they show the lowest dehumanization and the weakest hurt intention. And in the heterosexual stimuli condition, like all the variables is laid in the middle. But in the American sample, we found that the heterosexual video condition was associated with the highest dehumanization. And the homosexual condition was associated with like the strongest hurting intention. And the neutral condition was like associated with like both the weakest hurting intention and the lowest hurt, uh, dehumanization. And then we tested the 
mediation model among the Chinese temple, we found that the sexual arousal mediated the animal. Oh, sorry, the animalistic dehumanization mediated the sexual arousal and hurting intention. Which means that when people feel like more sexual arousal, they tend to dehumanize uh, gay people more and and like show stronger intention to hurt them. And also when they show like a lower sexual arousal than the baseline when they view the uh, gay the, 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 the gay people photo, they also show they also show the stronger hurting intention with humanization as the mediator. However in the American sample it is not the same case. Only the high sexual arousal led to dehumanization and led to hurting Intention. But in a homosexual video condition, it was a disgust that played the role. So it was higher disgust, led to higher animalistic humanization, and then led to hurting intentions. So that, that is basically Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your results with us, and congratulations on your, your Psychi Award winner. So congratulations on that, and good luck with everything in your future. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. I'm Rachel Hibbert from Hope College, um, and I was working with Dr. Daryl Van Tongren, so shout out to him. Um, and so we looked at the effects of priming heroes on helping intentions and meaning in life. Um, so our study was done online, it was two different studies. The first looked at um, fictional superheroes, so like uh, Superman, Spider-Man, things like that. and we. Um, implicitly primed images of these superheroes and then uh, participants went on to rate how likely they would be to help in um, hypothetical situations and then also rated their meaning in life overall. Um, and then the second experiment was really the same except participants were writing about a personal hero so um, and it was explicit priming so they wrote kind of about a person that they know and like what that person means to them. Um, so we were comparing sort of these like fictional superheroes and then personal heroes, like and how that affects um, your likelihood to help. And what we found was actually really interesting. Um, the fictional superheroes we found like indirect effects. So um, after being primed with images, people rated themselves more likely to help, which increased their meaning in life. Um, but with personal heroes, we kind of found that people rated their helping intentions lower, which actually decreased their meaning in life, um, which was not at all what we thought. Um, so we've kind of talked about it a lot. We think the priming would have one thing to do with it, um, so the explicit versus implicit priming. Um, but then also kind of the idea of like comparison with personal heroes. So when you're looking at pictures of superheroes, you're not really thinking like that you want to be like them. It's more just kind of inspiring, like, oh, I'll go out and help someone. Um, whereas if you're thinking of your grandma or someone that you know personally and is a really great person, you're kind of like, oh man, like I'm not as good as them. I'll never be as good as them. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of what we found. We're following up with it right now. We're kind of trying to bring it into the lab and then also looking at the different priming um, methods that we use. So. Awesome. Well, very yeah. interesting study and great results. And yeah, yeah, awesome interpretation of it. So thank you, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. And congratulations yeah. on your award. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So my name is Margaret Goronska, and my co-author is Bill Altermatt. He's also my faculty sponsor. And we are both from Hanover College, um, just a small liberal arts college in Indiana. And our 
topic was uh, Facebook privacy settings and data sharing, um, knowledge versus anxiety. And I just, I'm not on Facebook myself, but all of my friends, all of my acquaintances, even most of my professors are on Facebook, share a lot of information. And that has always surprised me because they seem to be aware of the privacy issues that come with it. So that makes them a lot more vulnerable to identity theft, to stalking and bullying. And so I was just curious about, you know, what is that relationship between knowledge and sharing information and knowledge and setting the strictness of your privacy settings? Um, and also I was just curious about what is the relationship between privacy concerns or anxiety about you know, data issues and um, sharing and privacy settings. So I looked at previous research and one of the things I realized was that most other studies use self-report measures that just ask um, participants, do you know you know, do you know what Facebook's uh, data policy says? Are you aware of these issues? It didn't actually test knowledge. So I decided to develop my own knowledge measure and um, use that to actually really test participants. And so my participants um, took an online study that assessed their knowledge, assessed their privacy settings or the strictness of their privacy settings and also the extent of their data sharing behavior, so what types of data do they share with whom, and um, their privacy concerns as well. And I thought that I would find a positive correlation between your knowledge of the data policy, so the knowledge scores, and um, the strictness of your privacy settings, and also um, how much you limit your data sharing. And I also thought I would find the same thing based on previous research results, uh, the same kind of correlation between um, your concern about data issues or privacy issues and the extent to which you share with people and um, also how strict your uh, settings are. And what I found was actually a bit different. So I did find a positive correlation between users' knowledge and the strictness of their privacy settings. But I didn't find a significant relationship between the knowledge and data sharing behaviors. So what I found instead was a negative correlation approaching significance between your concerns or users' concerns and the extent to which they share information. And I did not find a significant relationship between concerns and the strictness of your privacy settings. So at first it didn't really make a lot of sense, but then I thought that my findings might actually reflect the distinction between system one and system two processing. So um, automatic processing and just more deliberative um, processing. So I think, you know, when users share information, they just do it intuitively. It's automatic, it's quick, uh, it's really just influenced by emotion. Whereas when they set their privacy settings, um, they're really prompted to think about more complex issues and you know their their knowledge of the data policy is more obviously relevant to them. So that I think explains that distinction. Wow, well this is great research and very relevant to today's society. So yes. thank you so much for sharing it with us and congratulations on your sure. award. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, and that is going to do it for our uh, special MPA broadcast. Um, what, 13 posters in the last two days yeah. we have done? So um, lots and lots of good work. So I, I do have to ask, you, this is, you're finishing up MPA, finishing yeah. up your college career in just a couple of weeks. I'm here with Allie and Emery again. Um, any final thoughts, final words, things like that you want to want to mention? Um, well, I just have to say that being like a part of the psych program has been just amazing, and I'm really grateful for it, and it's been a great experience. 
it has been a great experience and it's been wonderful working with this podcast and being able to hear about all this research and working with wonderful faculty wonderful so and thank you both for everything you've done not just over the last couple days but uh just all all year long for the podcast has been great this is our last episode for uh season two here we'll probably be back with some uh stuff over the summer but just off and on so not we'll, we'll be back kind of full swing in fall when the semester starts again it will be long gone <laughs> yes at well after you two have graduated and moved on to other things so um i do have so we won't have an episode in a couple weeks but i do have some people i want to thank thank you both uh, very much for all your hard work amory and ally um thank you to all of the uh the the student researchers who volunteered to present as part of this that's very great uh and then also um uh thanks to kate farley our producer and kimberly vlees our podcast artist that is all we have thank you <laughs>